and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Absence. This is episode six, and today we have the amazing and inspirational Crystal Tubles with us. Hey, Crystal, welcome to the show. Hi, Amber. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm so excited. I think, did you get an opportunity to listen to Brittany and Maggie last week? I know you've been swamped lately. Yeah, I've been a bit busy. I've I visited with them a little bit, but I haven't been able to hear it. But that's definitely on my priority list right now. Okay, well, um, just for anyone listening, I think you can listen to these episodes in any order. But you know, start with Brittany and Maggie, and that's kind of what's leading us into the conversation with Crystal today, because she is the other co-director of the About Face Drop the Mic campaign, and it's just been so exciting to see her and Brittany's not only their leadership, but the extent and breadth of knowledge and analysis to so much going on in our society right now, but also militarism, which I think Crystal and I are going to cover today. Yes, most definitely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Crystal, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Let everyone know who you are, what's important to you, what matters to you in this world? Yeah. Um, oh, where do I start? So, um, just a pivashev, uh, my name, my English name's Crystal Tubles. Um, I just like to introduce myself in my Cheyenne name because that's really how I recognize myself and how I, um, hold myself in this life and in the work that I do. But I am Oglala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. So I was raised born on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and raised on the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation in Montana. And, you know, being raised in these communities is really the driving force behind any of the work that I do when it comes to organizing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely hold my family and my community and the values and the belief systems and the culture and the spirituality, um, I hold them really close to me in this work and it's really what grounds me in protecting them and ensuring my family's and my people's well-being is, is why I do the work that I do. It's really what's brought me to this point. And, you know, militarism is definitely one of the, the steps in the direction or in that process of protecting and really looking out for the well-being of my family. Yeah. Could you maybe name like one or two core values or beliefs that you carry with you as a Cheyenne woman? Um, wow. Let's see. I haven't been asked <laughs> that before. <laughs> uh, I, I would definitely say um, prayer is okay. really important to me. Um, my connection to the land and I don't know if that's necessarily like a value, but, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and we, within both the tribes that I'm a part of, like we, we do have specific like values and virtues, like generosity, humility, um, courage, okay. things that, that we are like tenets of our belief system. But, but I really think that prayer has been a huge um, part of my life. Mm-hmm. And has what's really kept me sane in all of the work that I do. <laughs> and you do do a lot of work, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about your military background? So I was, I enlisted 
I originally enlisted through the ROTC program at the University of Montana. Okay. Um, but, but started classes and soon realized that just with, you know, me being me is that, okay, if I want to lead people or I'm going to like identify as a leader, I would rather go through what everyone else is going through and like build up to that. Yeah. And so I actually dropped the contract and just straight enlisted into the military um, after I did that. And so I what enlisted. year was that? Uh, 2006, I enlisted. Okay. And yeah, and I, um, you know, was a part of several different engineer units, an army hospital unit, and deployed with Army Central Command to Kuwait in 2009 to 2010, um, and then came back as a reservist. And then eventually IRR and was done in 2014. Mm-hmm. What do you think about your military experience kind of overall and how it relates to what you've been doing since you left? You know, it's, it's kind of like bittersweet, my experience. Um, so I enlisted because growing up, you know, in my community, I was always taught that I serve my people. Like that is part of my responsibility. Um, my dad is actually one of the council of 44 chiefs in our community. And, and so I grew up understanding that him in that role and me as his daughter and my family being who they are, that we have an obligation to serve our people and to like ensure the well-being of our people. Mm-hmm. And so when an army recruiter pitched me the whole thing about serve your country, I thought that was the way to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I loved the training. I loved learning new things. I loved moving up the ladder. I moved up rank pretty quickly to a sergeant. And I loved that experience. And I, I really thought of it as like, I'm investing in me, you know, the whole thing of like, they're tearing me down and building me to a better me. And I bought into all of that. And Eventually, you know, when I was deployed, my experience on my deployment was I gained a lot of valuable skill sets and experience when mm-hmm. it comes to like leadership and organizing logistics. I was a 92 Yankee working at Maycom level. And so I handled a lot of logistics. Um, but along with that came sexual harassment and mm-hmm. came, um, you know, patriarchy in the military and me being a strong willed woman in a military, you know, in what was yeah. technically so like a war zone, it it didn't go very well. And so I ended up having to submit an IG complaint against a captain for sexual harassment. Oh, and, wow. And ended up leaving my deployment despite all the work that I did with just a certificate of appreciation as opposed to the awards wow. that everyone else got. And so... Because uh, you think that was directly related to having filed the uh, sexual harassment complaint? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. He's the one that submitted the paperwork himself. Oh, Uh, asshole. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely, I know for sure. Um, But yeah, so, you know, a lot of, so a lot of my, my military experience can be summed up with that is like, I was a strong willed and strong minded woman in the military and that doesn't always sit well with everyone. And so, yeah, so that was really like kind of how my military uh, experience went. And then when I returned back, I went to the reserves, which, you know, was still, it was the reserves. So honestly, I was there like once a month um, and just kind of finished out 
my contract and was just was ready to be done at that point. Mm-hmm. And at that point I had started really, um, really getting more into organizing and getting more into activism, even okay. though I don't identify as an activist, but I, I do acknowledge like activism. And so, um, during the time I was in the reserves is when I really started to engage in organizing. So it'd be around like 2010-ish yeah. time frame. What but was the first thing you did? The first thing I did was my parents actually are organizers in our community. And even though they won't verbalize and say that they're activists either, they, <laughs> uh, they have a, we have a long history of like resistance and, you know, engaging yeah. and taking action in our community. Um, it was Is it the word the that they that they don't like, or like it doesn't sit with maybe? I think it's, it's the I think it's like the radicalism part of activism. Oh, that, you know, like a lot of activists get stereotyped with like a radical view. Yeah, uh, which I don't think is like necessarily a bad thing, but I think that coming from like a more traditional home, yeah. um, that's really grounded in like traditional Native American belief systems. Like that, yeah, I think something about that word is like a little too radical, maybe. Okay. Um, Yeah. So the, they have a long history of like resisting coal development on our land. So extreme energy development. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, non-native people coming into our lands and um, basically trying to appropriate our culture and our ceremonies and stuff. So they have a long history of those types of things that I was exposed to. But okay. they had been asked to go and participate at a gathering down on Black Mesa, who has, you know, the Black Mesa and are the Cayenta mine in the uranium mining, all of that going on. And they couldn't make it. So they sent me. And then <laughs> okay. I, I was introduced to some of, you know, the most amazing indigenous organizers in this country and uh, definitely were influential. Yeah. But just really, and then, and then a lot of people with the GGJ Alliance okay. were there as well. Awesome. So I definitely met a lot of amazing people and seen what was possible. But not only that, but Sharon was the first person that came up to me and she was like, like, you're a veteran, you were in the military and basically recognized something with my skill sets and was like, I need to get you through training. I need mm-hmm. to get you to climb training. I need to get you to combat <laughs> action training. She's like, <laughs> and, um, and I was resistant for a while. I was really hesitant. And I think that was like my, my first introduction to what I could do with my military skill sets. Right. And, and that was basically the start of it is I went through that camp and it, it changed me. It definitely planted a seed yeah. and I finished out my military, military career, um, but slowly started to get more and more involved as I went, um, you know, as I just grew and developed a political analysis and developed my skill sets and also healed from all of the trauma that comes with being in the military. Yeah. And so that was a process as well. What do you think it was about going through the training that was part of the healing? I think what it was is like, I mean, not to sound like overly spiritual or anything, but I really think that I enlisted for a reason. And I really believe that I was led into the military and even led to the to that gathering for a reason. In mm-hmm. being a Native American veteran, it's a very complex identity mm-hmm. because of our history, right? Like we, the military was the colonial tool used to colonize these lands and mm-hmm. to 
start a slow genocide against my people, the original stewards of this land. Yeah. And, you know, and it's really fresh in my mind right now because right now in the winter months are the months where the U.S. military specifically would attack our people in our camps because it's winter. We're, we're at vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a very strategic and specific attack, but there are hundreds of massacres that occurred during these winter months. And, you know, my people alone right now, I just got back from the Sand Creek massacre run and I'm getting ready to go on the Fort Robinson outbreak run. But even in between that time, there's the Dakota 38 hanging. And then there's also the wounded knee massacre. And you know, my partner and I, he's a veteran as well from the mm-hmm. Marine Corps, but we both descend from people that have survived these massacres. Yeah. And so it's a very complicated identity because the military did that. That yeah. was the military. And in in at the same time, Native American people serve in the military at higher rates than any other ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And we have served in every war since before the U.S. was even a country. Mm -hmm. And we have helicopters, like military equipment named after us. Uh, Military uh, missions are named after us. Military posts and bases are named after us. Mm -hmm. And it's all this long, this long process of, uh, degrading us in erasing our history and replacing it with this like hyper patriotic militaristic um, story instead of our history. Um, So enlisting in the military and serving, but also recognizing our history and what the military has done to our communities It's very, very complex and it's confusing. And I struggled for a long time reconciling that within myself. Yeah. So going to this gathering with a lot of Native and Indigenous leaders that are organizing um, and then having someone recognize in me that my military skill sets can be used for good. Right. And to help communities. That was so powerful and like really pushed me along on my healing journey. It helped me to reconcile that, oh, like I understand these things and a lot of people in my community don't understand these things. And so therefore, like because I have these skill sets, I can help create change. And that's a big responsibility, but it's also purpose, right? right? And I feel like having purpose is one of the most healing things that can exist. And, and that's what I discovered. And that's what that gathering did for me was mm-hmm. it showed me that and at least started me on that journey. Yeah. Um, and kind of a lot of what you just said is kind of the whole purpose of Winona LaDuke's book, The Militarization of Indian Country, right? Yes. Kind of yep. reconciling those, you know, the, the military being used against Native people, but then also becoming part of that structure for, mm-hmm. you know, different reasons, um, as well as what the skill sets can bring. Um, yes, most definitely. Yeah, I got about halfway through it last night, and I think I think I already told you um, there's so much underlined <laughs> yes. Uh, that yes. I need to go back and think on and just like things that I found incredible. Uh, 
right on the very first page almost there are critical differences however between a war fought to defend the people and the land and a war fought to create or sustain an empire to impose colonial rule on an unwilling population like just to read that and think about how different that analysis of being a warrior is from the way that we're taught a warrior should be through the u.s military which is you know imperialist at its very base Um, wow, you know, like we can still be warriors, but we have to understand what the purpose is behind it. Yeah, most definitely. And and that was part of my healing process. That was something that I really came to was understanding that there is a very clear difference between being a warrior and being a soldier. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so in, you know, and I, I obviously recognize that not all parts are all branches of the military identify as being soldiers, but yeah. in general, if you can think about that, being a warrior or being a soldier, like you just follow orders mm-hmm. and regardless of the consequences, you, you, we are conditioned and indoctrinated to just follow orders. Mm-hmm. But being a warrior, it's about so much more. It's about doing whatever is necessary for the well-being of your people. Right. And the future generations of your people that aren't even here yet. And so, you know, I think that was something that was really driven home within myself during those last few years of being in the military and then really starting to engage in the work is that, yeah, we have to do that healing work within ourselves to make that transition from being a soldier to being a warrior. And that's, that's key, I think, when it comes to organizing. For me, at least for myself, that was key. Um, yeah, and so Winona actually gave me this book. And oh she signed gosh. it to me. Yeah, oh she's, a, she's a good friend of my family. Yeah. Uh, like I said, my family has been organizing, you know, for generations. And so uh, she's a good friend. And she actually gave it to me. And she warned me. She was like, you know, Crystal, this book is, it's a little harsh on the military. Yeah. She's like, but I, but I think you'll like it. And so <laughs> I read it. <laughs> it's like, I like it. <laughs> I read it and it was, I mean, there was no going back after yeah. reading that book. You do not see the world the same way once you read her book. Yeah. Um, and so it, it definitely was that for me, but also more importantly, what it does for me and especially in my current work as the co-director of the drop the mic campaign mm-hmm. is that, Part of my personal mandate in this work is to make sure and to normalize the conversation of the militarization of Indian country in every conversation about militarism. Yeah. Like that should be the starting point because the U.S. military was formed around indigenous resistance to colonization. And so. Yeah. I'm thinking about that. yeah, it was a it was the colonial tool in colonizing these lands, right? Right. right. We were the biggest resistance to that. Mm-hmm. And so, and I mean, we are the original stewards of this land. So in having these conversations, like it is so important to acknowledge the real history that exists on these lands. Mm-hmm. In all of that, colonialism 
in imperialism, as far as when it comes to like the U.S. reaching out, right, like are branching out into other countries and invading other countries and colonizing other countries, mm-hmm. like that all started with my people on this land. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's so, so important to have that conversation. That doesn't mean we have to rally around everything Native or any of that, but it just means like a simple acknowledgement of that and bringing that into the conversations when we can. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of like the work that I've been trying to really push forward. Is there one specific example that you could give around the drop the mic, mic standing for military industrial complex, um, how the campaign is acknowledging that or will be talking about that? Yeah, most definitely. So what we've actually started to do as a, you know, like simple steps moving forward is we're actually starting to, one of our goals is to bring in more Native veterans to About Face. Okay. Um, And to do so, we're going to be um, a couple of the stops for the Drop the Mic tour that's getting ready to launch in January. Yay! will actually be on Native American reservations in our communities. Oh, wow. And so that is part of the process and these like steps to move in that direction towards having these conversations is to politicize Native American veterans and to just bring them into these conversations that we as veterans in general are having um, nationally. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that's part of our process uh, that we're definitely doing. We're also in conversations about just recognizing and acknowledging the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that's really important. We are also one of our drop the mic tour stops. Um, We'll probably be having conversations around the doctrine of discovery and that? the doctrine of discovery. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> basically, I might butcher this, like I'm not as well versed, but that's okay. Basically, the doctrine of discovery is a document that comes from the papal bulls, um, the papal bull in Rome, and has allowed for other countries um, when they are the first ones on this land. If there are no christians on this land that they are able to like claim that land as their own what the fuck <laughs> right right i may have butchered <laughs> that but i mean that's kind of in general the way i've interpreted it um i encourage people to look it up google it make sure that yeah you know, i'll make sure I, I make sure i find a relevant link for everybody for the <laughs> yeah. show <laughs> yeah i've not heard of this before I'm, yes wow, I'm and that founded. yes and that is how this land was colonized. Yeah. Um, that's what allowed for it. And that is actually like the predecessor, or the ancestor of like Manifest Destiny. Okay. Um, yes. And so, so denouncing the Doctrine of Discovery is really important um, because it's still actually referenced by current Supreme Court uh, justices. Really? And it is still applicable in current court cases. So it's still being utilized as law in this country. Wow. And so, yeah. So it's definitely some of the conversations that we've been having, you know, internally and are planning to continue to have at our stops and within the campaign itself. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. Um, a question that I, that I have that was informed by the reading last night and then like you talking about stopping, having stops for the campaign, um, on tribal lands or near tribes, uh, 
Winona LaDuke had pointed out that like some tribes had really high enlistment rates throughout different wars and then others had like none. Um, mm-hmm. Do you mind sharing anything about what you think caused that? Like why some tribes enlisted at higher rates than others? And um, is that still kind of the same today? You know, I honestly don't know. Okay. I don't I don't know what the current rates reflect. Okay. I could I could guess and like give my opinion about it. Is yeah. I feel like not all try like, you know, of the what over five hundred and sixty different federally recognized tribes that exist on this land, mm-hmm. in addition to the non federally recognized, the state recognized, and then the ones that have completely just been like they don't exist anymore. Um Yeah. Not all of them were warrior cultures. Okay. Um, And so in my mind, part of the reason why, like on my Oglala side or even on my Cheyenne side, why I feel like people enlisted at higher rates was because when we were put on reservations, um, we, our roles, our men's roles as warriors were stripped from them. They were no longer allowed to protect or to provide. And so when those roles were stripped from them and then there became an opportunity for them to start reclaiming that role as a warrior to provide and protect through the U S military, they did that. It was a natural fit because that's what, that's what they do. That's what our warrior societies have done since time immemorial. Right. And so because an opportunity that previously hadn't existed because of the oppression came to exist they took that and so for our cultures that are more warrior culture based um we enlisted Mm -hmm. and so for me in my mind that's why I would would say that some tribes enlisted at higher rates than other tribes because not every tribe is you know carries that warrior culture okay Um, in the same extent uh they definitely do in their own extent uh their own regards but I definitely know like it's it's different and so I would say that's the reason. And did you ever have conversations about that contradiction of the warrior culture versus like, you know, the military soldier culture before you joined or? Oh, no, no. Actually, like these conversations are are still newer to me. Okay. And they're still really new to our communities. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that people are having the conversations and that people know but I just don't think that it's a normalized conversation that's happening. Huh. I, I, I only say, huh, because I recognize like even in predominantly white communities, that's such a difficult conversation to have, you know, even yeah. just trying to address it with immediate community, immediate family members, you know, there's a lot of antagonism towards like what I say now you know, versus what maybe I said five or 10 years ago. Um, yeah. And just, I guess, to even hear from you that it's difficult, that it may be difficult in your own community who's been hurt so much by the military. Like, what what can we do? And, and I don't yeah. mean that as like a, can you give me the yeah. answer to that? But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of rhetorical, what can we do? Oh yeah. God. I mean, and that's, that's it, right? Like it's, yeah. it's that point of being like, 
oh my God, like I had no idea. Like, what do we do? Like, how, how do we move forward with this this machine? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, knowing the full history doesn't take away from like a larger anti-war movement and it doesn't take away from that work being done. I think it enhances it and it gives us a larger understanding and a bigger picture um, perspective of how we can actually approach this thing. And, you know, I mean, like, I hate to use like a lot of like military lingo, but just like, like mapping our battleground is like, we are going (laughs) to win this with as many allies and as many relationships and partnerships and coalitions as we can possibly get. Yeah. And so it only makes sense to add to the conversation and add to that history. And so that's why I really push for this understanding and really push for this conversation to be normalized anytime we talk about militarism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we say that, you know, our current war is the longest running war that we've had, but really maybe the longest running war is the anti-war movement, you know, in yeah. the United States. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, um, part of that historical context is like, it sounds so corny and I know people say this all the time is that like history, um, you know, if not acknowledged, it's going to repeat itself. Right. Right. And or if forgotten, it's going to repeat itself. Well, it's kind of true. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I I went down to Sand Creek. Uh, My partner's father actually was really instrumental in, in, um, in getting a run that acknowledges uh, the trauma and the atrocity that happened down at Sand Creek in Colorado, just mm-hmm. south of Denver, and to getting a, um, a national historic site there. Um, and so he did a lot of work around that. And so we went down this last week and, you know, while I was there, this was one of the more horrific events that happened um, yeah. to our people. And I mean, we're talking like really horrific. We're talking about like after the massacre, just on top of just like killing women and children because our warriors were out hunting to provide. Mm-hmm. So primarily women, children, elderly. In addition to that, we're talking about like infants having their brains bashed in wow. with the buttstock of rifles. We're talking about pregnant women after being killed, having their babies cut out of their stomachs mm-hmm. and then the babies being scalped. We're talking about women's uteruses being cut out placed on the ends of bayonets and then the soldiers marched through downtown Denver in a parade, a celebratory parade. Wow. Like it was just extremely horrific and only two soldiers refused orders during that entire out of, I think it was like 570 soldiers. Yeah. Two of them refused orders. This sounds so much like my lay. Yeah. And so you see this is a familiar conversation. Mm-hmm. It's this isn't. So what we're seeing, and even just like I related it as far as like thinking about missing and murdered indigenous women, mm-hmm. that type of violence against women and the dehumanization of indigenous women and women in general was introduced through colonization. Right. And mm-hmm. then on top of that, I, the other way I related it was like to the border to those seeking asylum and those seeking refugee status, like we send what people say is like the world's largest and finest military to the border to deal with women and children. Yeah. Seeking safety. Yeah. How many of them have refused orders? 
You know what There's I mean? Been so, any, we haven't heard about it. <laughs> yeah. So that's what brings up this conversation is two out of 570. Right. And, and now we see the same response with the full force of the U.S. military to the border. Mm-hmm. And, and no, no one's refusing orders. And I'm not saying people have to. I'm not like saying one way or the other. But right. I am saying we need to be thinking about that shit, right? Right. Like that, is, that is something that we have seen the template before and it's being used again and again and again all yeah. over this world. And we have to recognize like the circular actions that are going on and like the U.S. complicity in Central America that has caused yeah. the unstable and dangerous conditions that are causing yeah. these people to want to seek asylum in the same place, you know, yeah. that funded everything to begin with, yeah. uh, funded and exactly. trained people to begin with. And wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all connected. All of yeah. these stories are like, they may seem like they're different stories, but the reality is it's the same story just mm-hmm. happening and occurring at a different time, different place, different yeah. people. Yeah. Do you have any... Mm, what am I thinking? This might be the most intense conversation I've had so far while recording this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I I should know better. I should have known better. Um I might cut some of that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm only saying like me uh, I'm gonna cut out me uh um rambling here, not you talking. Gotcha. Everything gotcha. that you're saying is so important and I don't necessarily know how to ask smart questions around it. Like what can we oh, tell yeah. people? What can we what can we do? You know, we need to address this militarism in our society and dismantle the military industrial complex. What are some but that seems so large. What are some of the tangible things that like people can contribute to or be knowledgeable of? Um, you know, to feel like they're actually chipping away at the whole thing. Yeah, I think that definitely as being a co-director for the Drop the Mic campaign, I feel like that is like our everyday struggle is to determine like, wow, this whole thing is so massive. But how do we turn that into like doable chunks in ways that we can actually contribute to dismantling this thing? Um, But I, I think that, you know, my personal thing is really investing in people. Mm -hmm. you know, reading the book. So obviously we keep referencing the militarization of Indian country by Winona LaDuke. Read it. Like (laughs) anyone listening, buy the book. Read it, internalize it. it. Yeah. Read it again after that. Uh, I read it like three or four times since owning the book. Um, And and now you're leading a reading group with the, about the face staff about face. Yes. And now the staff is reading it. And I've, I've really been pushing to incorporate this conversation internally and, I hope that those conversations expand out to our membership and to our network. And so I encourage people to read that. I also encourage people to learn the history because no matter where you live in the so-called United States, you are on indigenous land. Mm -hmm. You are living on the land that a native nation has probably died for. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage people to learn that history 
that doesn't mean I want to shame you or guilt you or any of that. I just want you to acknowledge that history yeah. and acknowledge those people. I'm going to drop the map in the show notes. Nice. Yes. Yeah, that shows that. So. Um, yeah, that'll I, be perfect. Yeah, I live on uh, Okanichi land right now. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up on Dakota land in southern Minnesota. Yep. Um, right yep. between exactly. Fort Snelling that handed out all the smallpox blankets in the middle of winter and uh, Mankato where the Dakota massacre happened. Yep, exactly. So and that that in my mind, like just knowing that and acknowledging that history, like that is a step forward. Yeah. And, and so much of our history has been erased, mm-hmm. silenced and ignored. Yep. Yeah. And acknowledging how little I knew about the actual stories behind either of those two significant events and the genocide of, you know, the people, the indigenous people to the Minnesota area. Um, yeah, definitely. Very, think, very whitewashed education, obviously. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. This, don't get me started on this education. <laughs> That's a whole other topic for another, another time. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do think that like having humility also is really important. Like I don't, as a native woman, I do not expect everyone that I work with to know the full history about everything native. Yeah. Like that is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. I think if we just can have a little humility and just acknowledge, like I have no idea, Mm -hmm. but I want to know, like point me in the right direction. Mm -hmm. That is a good start too. That is good enough for me. And you know, I will pour into as many directions as I possibly can. And yeah. Like do that. Just have humility. Like we don't have to know everything. I don't know everything about native people. You know, I only know my experience and my people's Mm -hmm. experience and I can reference that. But I think having some humility will be good and go a long way. Reading the book, gaining that education. Mm -hmm. I also think supporting indigenous movements. Yeah. Really letting indigenous people and native people tell us what they need from them. Mm -hmm. Um, That's so important. Like Standing Rock. I know we started this whole say, that's a great transition now to talk about Standing Rock. <laughs> yeah, I know we, we started out trying to talk about Standing Rock, but um, here we are. <laughs> and All so, yes, like showing up, like we know what's best for our communities. Mm-hmm. It, it may not always, you know, be pretty and how we go about it, but we know what's best for our communities. We can do that. We need support. Yeah. We don't need people to come in to, and to tell us how to do the work. Mm-hmm. We need support in that. And so these these camps that I'm hoping to have through the Drop the Mic tour, you know, we're going to focus on like upping our political education a little bit. And we're going to translate some military skill sets over to nonviolent direct action skill sets. Mm-hmm. And we're going to actually, you know, utilize that and help people understand how we can use this in our community to provide for and protect our communities the way that our original warriors had always been mandated to do so. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be doing that uh, hopefully more and more through the drop the mic campaign. So another way to support also just kind of taking a step back is, yeah. is support the drop the mic campaign, support these fundraisers that we're doing for about face because they are going to go directly to native communities and other communities where we're actually doing the work on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And so it will be utilized in the best way, pro- uh, way possible. Okay. But coming back to standing rock, is Standing Rock was, it was a lot of things. 
um, mm-hmm. <laughs> to say the least. And I, I was an organizer on the ground. Um, I actually started out with Red Warrior Camp and ran logistics for Warrior, Red Warrior Camp to make sure that we had food, we had um, shelter, we had organizers on the ground, we mm-hmm. had everything that we needed logistically to fully function as a, as a, as a resistance camp. Right. And How many people so were there? Uh, you know, in the beginning, so I got there in August, I believe, um, September, oh, August, September. Yeah, I believe I got there in August. Mm-hmm. And there weren't very many people there in the very beginning. There was Sacred Stone Camp, and we started out camping with Sacred Stone Camp, and then eventually moved over to what became Ocheti Shakoi Camp, the larger camp. And when we first got there, I mean, maybe there was like 100 people Okay. Yeah. And and then over obviously the course of like a month or two that expanded to be like 5,000 people. (laughs) That's a lot of logistics. Yeah. But I ended up eventually stepping away at some Mm -hmm. point because, you know, I was related to a lot of people and had a lot of like family relationships and, and friendships in many different areas with people that had many different views about how things should go in camp. Yeah. You know, anywhere on the spectrum from like, you know, burn this shit down (laughs) to, to like, we need to like sit and pray and not take action. Like praying is our action right now. Mm. And, and I'm not saying I disagree with either, but I was tied up in the middle of, of people who I cared about that had both of those beliefs and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like no matter which direction I went and who I supported and how I supported, I was going to hurt somebody that I cared about. And I was going to make a decision that would damage a relationship with someone that I cared about. And to this day, I have a grandma that won't talk to me Oh my because gosh. of that. I'm so and sorry. So it was, it was real, you know, there, there's real stuff that happens there. And so I, decided to step away from being on the ground and to support um, through the campaign that I launched called the No Dapple Global Solidarity Campaign. Okay. And so I really took a step back and thought that, okay, like if people are going to be on the ground through winter, they're going to need stuff to survive this and they are going to, going to need reinforcements. Yeah. And so, you know, just partnering with other groups and making sure that there was people on the ground, making sure there was food, making sure there's support and then doing updates for people to like support in many different ways. Um, I started to organize in that way. So I was still very much a part of it in in organizing. I just wasn't on the ground because I just, I valued my relationships more because no war is won by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so during those things and like, again, I'm referencing military language, but during wartime is like the time that you want to call on your allyships, that you want to call on your relationships, that you want to strengthen them mm-hmm. because otherwise we don't win. And so I, I valued my relationships with family, with friendships and people mm-hmm. um, enough to take a step back and to find another way to support. Okay. And, and so that's what I ended up doing. And, you know, we ran the campaign as long as we possibly could. And, it was a powerful campaign and it brought together some of like the most amazing team members, you know, that I've had the honor of working with mm-hmm. and continue to work with now, obviously through about face. Yeah. And so 
yeah, so that's definitely some of the work that I did. But I think one of the most important things about that is that is Standing Rock, what it did, one of the most powerful things that it did was it planted a seed and lit a fire in every person that went there. Mm -hmm. And all of those people left and went back to their own communities and started to organize. And so now we have people all over the country in Indian country and in native native communities that are organizing, that are resisting, that are trying to create change in their community, that are trying to protect, that are trying to provide. And so I encourage people like one of the best ways to support indigenous peoples and to address some of the, the, the slow genocide and the colonialism that happened is to support these current resistance movements. Um, There's line three up in Minnesota which Winona LaDuke is leading the the, um, fight on. And she has a solid team of people. And there's Oak Flat down in Arizona where uh, Senator John McCain sold their their sacred lands on them through a sneaky bill. Yeah, exactly. And so... There's Atlantic there's Pipeline a- here in North Carolina. <laughs> there's the Bayou yes. Pipeline. In yep. Louisiana. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yep. Bayou you know Bayou. how many like pipelines are being pushed across native lands right now? Oh, gosh. I mean, I can't even. I couldn't even count them right yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, the KXL is getting ready to go yep. through like Cheyenne River Sioux Tribes, New Fort Peck. Um, yeah. Is that the one coming from Canada? Yep. Yep. Yes. It's so... There's a lot of indigenous resistance right now and every single one of them is worth it to invest in. So, you know, I just encourage listeners to, to do the work and look for those because I guarantee there's some kind of indigenous resistance close to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Unistotin, it's another one that's coming up soon. Um, You know, there's the tribes that are down by the border the yeah. Tohono Autumn, like they're resisting down there. They're resisting several different, the wall, um, a highway being built right through their territory. Yeah. So there are plenty of, of campaigns and movements that are led by Native people and for Native people mm-hmm. that listeners can support. And, and I think that's like one of the largest ways or one of the most effective and impactful ways for listeners to, yeah, to take that step in that direction. Mm-hmm. And that financial support is almost always the number one thing, right? Or yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, I think it's definitely there. It's mm-hmm. it's it's in the top three factors of how <laughs> effective we can be. Right. But I also think that building genuine relationships and. And genuinely being on the ground or genuinely supporting me like, hey, like I have this skill set or hey, like I'm a medic. I can be a frontline medic or hey, I have this skill set. I'm a trainer. I can offer this. Would you like my support? Would you like my help? Is this helpful? And asking those things like I think like, yes, monetary support is valuable and it it does take the work a long way. But also building those relationships and being on the ground and offering your skill sets is also important, which mm-hmm. is the reason why, you know, I came to about face is because as a veteran and as veterans, you know, in this whole country, we hold a unique position. Um, we have a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of knowledge and experience and skill sets 
And we have to learn to harness all of that and channel it into these movements. And so logistics, I can support these movements through logistics. I may not be locking down, but I will make sure that there is funding there to get you out when you are ready. <laughs> like, yeah. so every, yeah. every campaign, every movement has different roles. Mm-hmm. And we all have different skill sets that we can bring to the table. And so as veterans, it's even that much more skill sets that we bring, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's why I think About Face is just like this organization that can help channel all of those skill sets into the people's movements, mm-hmm. whatever that might look like. Um, but yeah, I just, I wholeheartedly believe that and believe in our ability to do that. My my weird skill set that I have to offer is as a former military police officer, I have actually pepper sprayed, you know, hundreds of people in training environments and had to take care of them afterwards. Yeah. You know? So like one, helping people who've been pepper sprayed, but two, mm-hmm. being aware of when law enforcement is about to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... That's been one where I'm like, that's not really what I was taught to do all this for, but this seems to be a much better use of it. So Exactly. And that is the direct translation of your military skill sets yep. over to direct action, right? Yep. Like, yeah. That is a perfect example of what I envision to happen everywhere with all of our veterans that are part <laughs> of our network. <laughs> like, I want to see that everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing- if we can help facilitate that, like that's that much better. Yeah. One thing that I remember um, from Standing Rock, which was, wow, almost two years ago now. uh, Yeah, yeah. It it almost doesn't seem like that could be. um, Was like, I don't know if this was true or not, but on social media, it was like there was a big call for bodies, you know, people to show up. And then a couple days later, after people started showing up, it was like, please stop coming if you don't know how to handle a Midwest winter. Or if you're not, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're not prepared. So there's also that challenge of recognizing when you're not ready. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yep. You no, know, because 20 below on the prairie is fucking cold. Oh, God. There's, yeah, it's no joke. <laughs> That's for sure. And then in that situation, like, find another way. Take a yeah. step back and be like, yo, like, I'm a liability right now. Yeah, because I don't want me on the it. front line. Yeah. <laughs> I can't handle that. But hey, like I have some awesome access to winter coats and some winter gear. Let me ship those over. Let me send some money because people probably need to get out of jail. They need food. Like, let me find another way to support. Um, I think that's important to always take a step back and to look at the whole picture and to see that. Although, yes, being on the front line is probably what people most prefer. Mm-hmm. But from my standpoint, like taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture, there are a million different ways we can find a support. And we need all of those different ways to actually be effective and to be successful. Mm-hmm. I is- also want to mention... Oh, go yeah. ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I just wanted to mention, like I I definitely threw out a different bunch of different campaigns. But what when I'm talking about like the way indigenous peoples have been impacted by the military. I just want to also mention Hawaii Mm. and make sure that I, I insert that into the conversation as well Mm -hmm. that, you know, people that I care deeply about and like, you know, native Hawaiian brothers and sisters, like they, Hawaii, I think is it the most militarized state 
in the U.S. And so I think that's important to recognize because that's all indigenous land, those islands, and it's the most militarized. And so as a Native person, seeing their struggle, like I just want to acknowledge that and make sure that I'm putting that spotlight there and that I'm also acknowledging their struggle with this, not as anything separate, but as the same struggle that I'm trying to bring up when I talk about indigenous and Native um, oppression and colonization. Oh, yeah. I might have to bring somebody on soon to talk about that. Oh, I have the person for you when you're ready. <laughs> we'll talk about that after we're done recording. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, Hawaii, Alaska, um, that the borderlands, you know, were in, indigenous people as well. And, the you know, all those weird yeah. treaties and purchases of land that didn't actually belong to these countries to begin with. Yep. Yeah. <sighs> yeah exactly so much. we have our work cut out for us just a little bit <laughs> for sure. yeah what is the status of standing rock these days for people who may not be in the know or following as far as i know is that oil is running through the pipeline mm-hmm. and everything has is leaked currently. a couple times has leaked a couple times and everything is in the courts as far as i know um, but honestly, I've been a bit removed from everything since then, um, taking on a lot of different, a lot of different campaigns and struggles in other areas as well. Yeah. It's kind of hard to stay connected to everything, even when you want to be connected to everything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is. It's really, I think every day that's kind of the struggle is just all of these different struggles mean something to me. They all impact me and they all weigh on my heart. And so trying to determine like where I spend my energy that day, it's always a struggle um, to know where I need to like, yeah, exert my energy the most. And I don't know, all I can do is really pray about that and, Mm-hmm. and do the best I can with managing as much time and as much energy as I have to each one of these different movements and different campaigns that exist. And it's hard, but also I do know that we are having an impact and we are creating change. Yeah, It may not be as fast as we would like to see. It may not be as much as we would like to see, mm-hmm. but it is happening. And so just trying to keep the faith in that is so important to me. All right. Well, I think it's time for us to wrap up. We've been talking for a while. Do you have any parting words or do you have anything that you just really want people to take away from our conversation today? Um, I mean, I just really want people to understand what I talked about earlier and talking about the difference between a soldier and a warrior. Mm-hmm. Like, let's really do that work to like make that transition. Let's, help each other heal and even in pushing this conversation around the militarization of Indian country just keep having the conversation yeah you know seek out that knowledge and find the native resistance and the indigenous resistance that's near you and support them mm-hmm. and I think those are really things that I I appreciate and encourage at the same time Yeah, but also just really appreciate you taking the time and giving me space to share some of my opinions and my views and what's 
what I value and why I do this work and, and even why I joined About Face in the first place. And so <laughs> I appreciate this time to be able to share a little bit, oh. to share my voice on this platform. I'm just so happy to have everybody. And, you know, as I, as I make list of people that need to come on to the show, I'm like, but everybody needs four or five hours, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm always identifying, oh, we could spend more time on this. We could spend more time on that. And that we just have so many amazing women veterans and gender nonconforming veterans in our community. Yeah. Uh, yep. And there's so much to be said. Yeah, most yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. There's There's a lot of conversation, but I think you're doing an amazing job. And I think covering this topic specifically is, is really, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Crystal. And I'm sure we will have you and Brittany back on in a few months to give us an update. Yes, most definitely. All, All right. right. Well, thank you.